We were in school studying to be pastors. This was the three years we had to learn as much about the Bible, theology, church history, ethics, preaching, care, education, so that we could care for the church. And so every assignment, every test, every paper we wrote was our opportunity to hone our skills to serve the people of God. Or so we were led to believe. There was a fellow student with me, a guy who's good, he was bright, but he had been deeply formed by the increased emphasis on standardized testing in our educational system. You know, end of course evaluations, um, ACT, SAT scores, GPA. And so I remember in this particular uh, lecture, our professor had guided us into the exile with the Israelites. We sat in despair by the waters of Babylon, fraught and hopeless. And right as this lecture was coming to its conclusion, Zach raised his hand and furrowed his brow. Will this be on the test? He asked. You could watch the air leak out of the teacher before they responded to the question. Now, it's easy for me to criticize Zach here because I had this very hopeful understanding of my pastoral education at that time, but I've also been Zach. I can tell you specifically it was when learning about zone gases in high school chemistry class. That's the course as it grew harder throughout the semester that I had to resort to simply trying to learn the material in order to pass the test. And I've talked to quite a few young people in our church in the last several months, and it sounds like chemistry operates the same way for many of them even today. In the moment of our passage today, it sounds like Jesus is being put to a test. Immediately before what we read, Jesus is confronted by a group of Sadducees. If you've been with us over these weeks, you may remember that the Sadducees were elite Jewish leaders, usually tied to the line of the high priests. They were wealthy. They also accommodated a lot of the Greco-Roman culture into their life. Um, the Sadducees did not affirm the belief in the resurrection from the dead. And so they come to Jesus with this story to try to expose the preposterous nature of resurrection. Jesus manages to sidestep their trap while still affirming the general resurrection of the dead. Our passage for today then clearly points out that there was a group of Pharisees nearby enough to hear Jesus' exchange with the Sadducees. And these Pharisees are intrigued by what Jesus has to say because, like Jesus, the Pharisees affirm the resurrection from the dead. Jesus sounds like a Pharisee. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees differed on their belief in resurrection. The Pharisees were also very intense about their study of Scripture and their obedience to the law, the Torah. One of their practices was to try to make sense of all of the laws of the Torah that they found. They wanted to create categories, types of commandments, and to classify which type of commandment was the most important to God. Sometimes they did this by evaluating what the punishment associated with each commandment was. And that was the most important of the commandments. There wasn't total agreement on which types were most important, but they usually came down to either the sacrifices to God, the practice of the Sabbath, or the continuing work of circumcision. 
Ingesting and living in tension with the complexity of the whole law, that was too hard. What we needed to do was figure out how to pass the test. What do we need to do to pass the test? It's what we do. We still do it today. One of the representatives comes up to Jesus and asks him this legitimate question. Which one is the greatest of the commandments? Now, he's not looking for one particular citation of one particular law. This isn't uh, a dart to have to be thrown and hit the bullseye of the dartboard. He's looking for what type of commandment is the greatest. Help us with our study guide, he's saying to Jesus. Let's see if you come down where we come down. And Jesus replies with the first part of the Shema, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, it's a prayer that faithful Jewish people are to recite every morning. It says with this text that you're to recite it every day, you're to teach it to your children, write it on your doorposts, bind it on your foreheads. The Pharisees believed this. They would have said this prayer every morning. They would have known that it was important as faithful people. But the thing is with this commandment to love the Lord your God is it's kind of vague. Um, how, they want to know, do we go about fulfilling this commandment? Is it sacrifices? Is it Sabbath? Is it circumcision? And Jesus, the enigma that he is, won't answer the question with just one type of commandment, but continues talking and lifts up another one. Jesus would be a very bad standardized test taker. Choice A, B, C, or D, and Jesus bubbles in two of them or draws an arrow and writes a totally different answer in the margins. He quotes here Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus, which is the older version of the law, all the way back to the Moses period on Mount Sinai. Um, Deuteronomy, by its very name, Deutero means second. Deuteronomy is the remake of the law from the time of King Josiah, hundreds of years after Leviticus. Um, you can think about it like the original animated Aladdin uh, that featured Robin Williams voicing the genie versus the more contemporary live-action version of Aladdin that basically tells the same story, but there's a new song here and the Jasmine character is empowered in a little stronger of a role. This is Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You'll never watch Aladdin uh, the same way. <laughs> There's a debate in Jesus' day about how to reconcile these two books of the law. Which one is more authoritative? And which one do you turn to when there's conflict in how Leviticus versus Deuteronomy responds to the same issue? But you note here that Jesus answers the how question of how to love God from Deuteronomy by citing a passage from Leviticus. You fulfill the Shema not by reciting it each morning, but by how you live in relationship with others. This quote from Leviticus 19.18, it comes as a particular part of instruction that talks about honoring parents, offering sacrifices, leaving produce for the poor, admonitions against stealing, offering fair payment for work conducted, to tend to those who are blind and deaf, and to practice fair justice for the rich and poor alike, concluding with love your neighbor as yourself. These are flesh and blood ways to enact this love of God, to enact this love of neighbor within a community, physical practices and policies. 
And in quoting these two commandments and tying them together, Jesus is basically doing what his questioner asks. He's describing what type of commandment is the most important. On these two hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. Every other commandment to be read then must be interpreted through the lens of these two. So if any commandment is not helping a person to grow in their love of God or to grow in love of their neighbor, then it's being misunderstood, misused, or abused. So while answering the question, Jesus does not provide his interrogator with a reliable and easy answer that he can regurgitate in order to pass the test. But at the same time, Jesus is not rejecting the law or the faith of his own people. He's pointing these serious religious practitioners to the end of their faith instead of getting stuck on the means that get them there. He's encouraging them to live fully within the complexities of the law and its daily practice instead of trying to break it down into measurable and attainable elements that they can use to prove that they're doing enough or that they're getting it right. In this exchange, then, Jesus is showing the contrast with God's ways and with our ways. Our natural inclination is wanting to know, what do I need to do to get the answers right in order to pass the test. My natural inclination is self-preservation. Evolution teaches us this. Study of other mammals teaches us this. Anthropology teaches this. We protect our own life and then those perhaps within our immediate circle as our, as our birth family and then perhaps an extended family of the tribe. But I really have no natural obligation to anyone else beyond that. That's the natural base of care. So I structure and I order my life to provide for myself and for my family, and then I know that I've done what I need to do to pass the test. But Jesus, reorienting faith, drawing upon the tradition of his own faith, reveals something more true than our nature. Jesus reveals God, God who showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai, God who spoke to Josiah. Jesus reveals a God who actually communicates that our lives by the word of God alone are tethered to every other human life and to the creation itself. And how we honor those with whom we share no familial bond that is how we fulfill the commandment to love our God. Without this claim, without this teaching, and without this expansive definition of neighbor, we wouldn't come to that conclusion. It is holy revelation. Economic policy political order, military strategy, diplomacy, educational theory, biology, these do not of their own accord point us to this kind of connection that our life is intertwined with every human life and that another's well-being, regardless of who or where they are, is bound up in my own well-being. That is a value that comes from outside of our experience. It is not naturally revealed. 
try to grasp this, let's go together to Bologna, Italy in the 12th century. In 1150, the Decretum was completed, a collection of church, church teachings to guide the life of Christian people, to help with decision-making and ethics. The Decretum opens with a quote from the Apostle Paul where he's quoting Jesus. Jesus is quoting Leviticus where Paul says, the sum of the law is love your neighbor as yourself. That's how it opens, and then everything else within its pages is an effort to show how would that be practiced in a human civilization. One of the pages, one of the reflections in the Decretum has to do with thievery, particularly with a starving pauper who, is to, who steals from a rich man. The Decretum, following this divine revelation of love your neighbor as yourself, says that the pauper is acting in a natural state for the condition in which he is living. And so he cannot be held accountable for his behavior. But the rich man is held accountable for not providing for the needs of his neighbor and thus must atone by making alms for the poor. This is 1150. This is saying that not only do the rich have an obligation to the poor, but that every human life is sacred and should be given the capacity to have the basic elements for human survival. Today, we would call that human rights. So human rights even if they're professed by the most secular atheist, are in a sense a faith claim. It's a faith claim based in this unnatural idea that every life is sacred, consequential, and worthy of being treated with love. It is living out this commandment of Jesus himself. I express this so pointedly this morning because I believe we live in a time, maybe we always live in a time, when there are a lot of forces that are encouraging us to behave in natural ways. Individual rights, tribalism, national policy and personal decisions. I don't have to lay out the laundry list. You know what temptations pull at you. Lives directed simply towards passing the test. So if you want to make a case for the church in this climate in our time, which I do, that's why I'm standing here, it is that we know the power source which can form people to learn the type of commandment that can shape and lead greater flourishing for all of humanity, whether Christian or otherwise. It is a life of communion with God that understands principally that true life comes in caring for those beyond our innermost circles. And as Richard Floyd, pastor and writer, says in an essay on this passage, this habit, to form the habit of loving this unnatural way, of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, we must be formed in a grace-filled community of faith where it is proclaimed and sung and embodied over and over and over again. In a few minutes today, we're going to baptize two new people into what we pray is a grace-filled community here. 
We commit to helping them to know God in Jesus Christ and to embrace these commands as a way for them to live, for Dane and for Jack to live all of their days. My hope for them is my hope for each of us that we could see a bigger picture than simply passing the test. And instead, we might be enveloped in the love of Jesus that drives us toward our neighbor, to dignify life, to advocate to the forgotten, and to proclaim an unnatural hope. Amen.